Welcome back to another episode of The Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller, North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Dave Forsyth. And I'm Todd Lucas. We are the hosts of the Edge of Tomorrow Minute podcast, which covers the movie Edge of Tomorrow in this very similar movie by minute format. Today we are talking about Minute 68 of North by Northwest. And the minute opens on our friendly scenic cruiser continuing its journey off the screen, and it ends with a 1954 Mercury Monterey convertible following the bus's footsteps. Tire tracks? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. Heading down the road in the same general direction. Yes. So we linger on the crane shot, the establishing shot, whatever we want to call it, for about 10 seconds um, that we had seen previously. We see who we assume is Thornhill uh, at this point still, because we haven't gotten in close enough to see um, he's standing exactly where he got off the bus. He hasn't moved a, a muscle yet. He stands right by the bus stop sign on the southbound side of the road, assuming that this bus is coming from Chicago, which we've been told that it is. And he's just north of the dirt crossroad that, that not parallel, but perpendicular. <laughs> comes perpendicular to, to Highway 41. You see a cloud of dust. That was kicked up by the bus, it sort of drifts away from him, and the, the dirt sort of trails out into the paved road from the crossroad. So after that, we get a, a jump cut into a shot from ground level. It's maybe 20 feet or so away from Thornhill. And the camera looks like it's set up on the dirt road about where you'd stop your car if you were driving on the dirt road. And then you came to a four-way stop. So, you know, where that, <laughs> if there were a, a white line telling you where to stop on a pay, on a dirt road. That's that's about where the camera is. And there, immediately there's something here that bothers me. It's that white sign that we've noticed before, you know, from the crane shot. It um, why is the sign facing that direction and on that side of the road? I mean, this is the United States, right? Yes. So okay. I, I have a, a few things about that one. But, well, first of all, describe the 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 sign. It's it's in three panels, right? Right. So the, the top panel is a little rectangular double-ended arrow, and it says prairie stop on it in small, very small text. You kind of have to pause and zoom in to, to be able to read it, I think. But yeah, the arrow is huge. The words are small. And then the next sign down uh, says Indiana 41, which, you know, is telling us the name of the highway. Uh, and it's square with a white background and a, a little uh, black text and a little thin black line that implies that this is a state highway. And the final panel says bus stop. So it says bus kind of small and stop really big. Yeah. It's more black text on, on white square with a, a wider black border. Yeah. Pretty much nothing about this really works as a real sign. So <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure I've actually ever seen something referred to as a prairie stop actually have, you know, the left and right arrows on it. Yeah. I'm yes. Right. The, the signs are all sort of oriented the wrong way. Right. The, right. The bus stop one that says the name of the stop with the arrow is indicating it should be parallel to the road. Right. So that, you know, as you're the passenger coming on and off the bus, you can see it. Or maybe it's saying that, no, I think maybe that the direction that it is perpendicular to 41 is probably right. Because it's probably saying that there's a stop on both sides of the road. Right. But, uh, I mean, usually that kind of sign is like, hey, this is literally a different highway, you know, something. In my part of the world, it's usually like a letter or two letters rather than numbers that most people are used to. So around here, I'd be like, Highway DD is what's going across perpendicular to Highway 41. 
But uh, yeah, it's just it's confusing just because it's on the wrong side of the road. It's not facing the person who'd be stepping off the bus and maybe looking at it. It's not right. facing anyone who would be driving towards it. It's right. just weird. Yeah, it's definitely facing the wrong direction for the side of the road that it's on. And the other, the other big problem with it is that forty one is not is not a, an Indiana State Highway. It's a it's a U.S. highway. Right, um, so it would have been a would have been a shield back then. Still, yes, it would have been the black background, white shield, black text, and it would have said forty one with I think U.S. Highway in the uh, or or maybe just I think depending on the age of the sign, it might have said H W Y in the top part or or U S in the top part. Right, um, but yeah, I mean forty one is so. actually a pretty famous highway, and it it extends all the way from the upper peninsula of Mi- Michigan. And it comes down, well, so imagine, if you will, the mitten of Michigan, and then you have the, the big thing that climbs across the top, and that big thing crosses, well, kind of between two great lakes, and it touches both Michigan and Wisconsin. So this is on the extreme west side of the peninsula. So Highway 41 starts there, it comes south down through Wisconsin, and comes through Illinois along Chicago. So it... it sort of skirts the Lake Michigan, the West coast of Lake Michigan. And it actually is coming when, when it comes through Chicago portions of highway 41 are Lakeshore drive. So it's a very oh, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and you know, what? you know, that famous song, Oh gosh, what's it? Eliada Hayes, Jeremiah or something that, you know, driving on Lakeshore drive song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vaguely, yes. I know what you're talking about. Okay, so this is a total nitpick here from somebody who lived in Chicago. But he says, or they say, I guess it's probably the band, running south on Lakeshore Drive heading into town is the like the prettiest drive he's ever known or something like that. But no, I think he's wrong. I think the northbound trip on Lakeshore Drive from the south side of Chicago is probably... It's probably prettier, especially, well, and I think he says south, coming south into into town on Friday night specifically, but that's honestly a terrible time to be driving <laughs> on, on Lakeshore Drive because you, you're probably going to be, uh, if it's the summer, you're going to be surrounded by gangs of, of crotch rockets who are going to, you know, they wait until they drive up and down Lakeshore Drive all night. And then when it gets really late, like 2 a.m., you see them open up because it's it's fairly straight except for a few curves, which the curves are kind of fun on the motorcycle. And th- those guys, they're essentially daring the cops to, to, to stop them and try and out. They will try and outrun the cops. You get people cru- cruising down Lakeshore Drive on their motorcycles that are like, you know, 100, 150 miles an hour sometimes. It's, yeah. it's pretty crazy. That sounds um, terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean it, it, there's also lots of other traffic on there. So it's not like it closed completely closed off to anyone who's not driving a uh, sport bike. But um, yep. but yeah, I, I think the, I think the northbound route, particularly from about 79th street, um, there's a, a bend in the lake or, you know, the lake kind of comes in and forces the road to bend and you go past rainbow beach park through South Chicago and past all the buildings from the Columbian exposition, the world's fair from 1893, the, the, right. only a few left right. in like, the facade of soldier field and the museum of science and industry. Yeah. Okay. I've I've only been through there once, and it was I was a small child, maybe eight or nine, but I'm, I have very distinct memories of that. And it was 
It was literally a gray, cold, nasty day, but it ah. was the best part of that trip. Yeah, we got out sure. there on the Lakeshore Drive and I was like, ooh, now we're in a good place. Yeah. So, and we were heading north, heading to the Museum of Science and Industry. Yeah. Take that drive on a sunny Sunday morning, I think. And I think that's probably the, the prettiest, prettiest drive in America, I'll say. Well, <laughs> prettiest urban drive in America, maybe. <laughs> I think. You know, there's probably some some other scenery you could you could find that you might call a little prettier. But as you come up past all those museums and you start seeing the skyline of the city, and you will pass Buckingham Fountain, and it's 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 nice. So take cool. that, uh, Eli- Oh gosh, Eliada Haynes Jeremiah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard yeah. name to say. And it makes for a difficult argument. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm mad at you, but I don't quite know how to pronounce your name, and it's long, and I, I'm not even sure that's 100 percent the right band names. But I'm pretty sure that's it, because you know that's a long-standing beef with with me and, and their opinion of of Lakeshore Drive. So. Gotcha. I'm sure they've been waiting to hear about this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, US 41 travels, like I said, through Chicago, and it actually I think doesn't end until Miami. So it's a, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a U.S. highway, so it's not an unbroken interstate. It's one of those things that you'll have to turn left here and right there to stay on, on, right. on the road. But, but it's and a it jogs it's, around a bit. Yeah. That's to Miami. Holy crap. I mean, there's yeah. really not much further you can go unless you were the high. What, what is the highway that, that goes down the keys and across yeah. those giant bridges? Yeah. I don't remember the number. I, I want to say it's eh, maybe it's one. I'm not sure, but it's, it's one of those, uh, it's one of the very long stretches of, of road. And, you know, b- before the interstate system, which I'm pretty sure this would have been, that, that probably was a, a much more major road than, than, than what it is now. Now it's, like I said, previously, it's mostly strip malls and shopping centers, but. Crazy. Yeah. I'm sure it's more than two lanes now too, though, right? <laughs> In most parts. Well, around Chicago, it is anyway. So who knows the, the portions through, uh, Arkansas, maybe, maybe, who knows, but, but yeah, the, the prairie stop on US 41, our sign, it's all wrong. There we go. I've said it. It's wrong. Yeah. Well, we knew that ahead of time though. Yeah. <laughs> We're just hoping that this actually is in Indiana somewhere or something Indiana adjacent. Cause yeah. You know what? I, I probably, since I'm podcasting about this, I probably should have looked up the actual uh, filming location, but I wasn't able to find it. So yeah, it seems accurate to you know what, and what an autumnal scene in in rural in Indiana would look like to me. But, um, but yeah, the sign was probably put there just for, just for film just, and sake. Yeah, it was just for today, and then they took it with them. <laughs> yeah, and somebody's probably got that proud prop in their closet. Some no, probably not. But anyway, we we see Thornhill. He's had the dust go past him from from the bus, and he's uh, still standing in his spot, and he's looking around and not really seeing anything and you can see him look back in the direction the bus came from and then he looks towards the camera it's the sun looks very out of place here in his suit sort of on the edge of a dirt farm at this point (laughs) yeah but he's got the right tan for the place well that's true we get a series of shots where we cut to his point of view you show him looking one way and then cut to his point of view you see the bus disappearing in the distance doesn't quite make it out of out of uh out of the frame but you can sort of see it start to to get over the horizon and it just becomes a dark square then gets out of focus and we don't really see it back to a switching back to a closer shot of thornhill now sort of a waist up 
shot that's you know imagine the camera is in the middle of highway 41 and he's he's facing it oh yeah <laughs> i had a note here that imdb lists there's a continuity error in this scene um that his suit that he wore in LaSalle street station is actually a different color than here but i i don't know about that i think it it's is radically different lighting right and and um we talked previously about how the the color saturation here is a little a little weird like maybe they skewed it extra brown yeah because uh, the, the suit he was wearing in LaSalle street station is gray but it's it was a much lighter gray mm-hmm. but we don't know what they've done to the final print here to get the the backgrounds to look this way it may have um, very severely affected his clothing color yeah it also seems to have made him his skin tone a darker <laughs> than we were saying yeah true because i mean it it's it's you know, very tan, but it's also a little more on the red side than it was before. Yeah, you know, a so. little more George Hamilton now than maybe he was before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm guessing that they were, they pushed the brown on the, the on the warm side of brown for the yeah. most part, and that that may have affected everything. And I'm pretty sure when you mix any kind of brown into gray, you start pushing towards black. So, yeah, we continue watching Thornhill survey his surroundings, and we like I said, we get that series of shots of him looking at something and then a shot of what he's looking at. So it's, it shows him and then his POV. So he looks back up North up highway 41. There's nothing. We see the fence posts and this time we can see the wire, uh, forming the fencing instead of just a line of posts. He gazes into the empty field across the street. We can kind of see some buildings in the distance again, maybe they're barns. It's, it's pretty impossible to tell. They're just sort of from what I, places I'm used to and on the high plains of Illinois, that the one that I'm thinking of that kind of looked like that was actually a coal plant. Yeah, you know what it 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 does. It, we do have like two different clusters of of buildings there, and one of them does seem to be like a um, a dense cluster of tall kind of who knows what, but it's something maybe refinery, maybe a plant, maybe. Something it's out here. It's most certainly not tall, like office buildings or anything like that. So. Right. Yeah. Because it does kind of have that bit of an aspect like, oh, look, there's a city over there. But, you know, that's a fantasy. You know, nothing looks like that from this distance. So Yeah. We cut back to Thornhill and we see him looking what would be west, which is down the dirt road behind him. And we begin to see uh, Chekhov's crop duster, I suppose. Yes, in the exactly. Back, in the background. I was actually thinking of the, the exact same way. Yeah. Because when you first see it, it's just a, a dot and it's not moving for a brief second. It's like not, you know, half a second. It's it's literally like they had edited it in and then they started moving it after yeah. like three or four frames had actually gone. And then a few frames after that, it starts releasing the crop dust. So it's, 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 it's just weird. I'm like, I mean, it's, it's telegraphing. Hey, look, I'm a crop duster. I'm the only thing that you see moving. Yeah. Which he immediately ignores and turns away from. Right. The city boy ignores it because like myself, he doesn't fully understand crop dusting because that seems to me like that's kind of high in the sky to be dispensing chemicals that you would want on crops on the ground. If, unless you want it to cover an entire like two mile area, but Maybe that's how crop dusting works. I don't know. No clue. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I don't have clues, but we, you know, crop dusting is not a thing that's happened for decades. Right. So, right. So it's not city versus country anymore. It's like just technology versus yeah. old technology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, crop duster sounds like a pretty fun occupation to me, but 
I could have done that. That would have been about the best flying I could have uh, qualified for. Yeah, right. Can't handle the G's, so you know, Air Force wasn't going to put me through. So yeah. Well, although I think it was your dad that that told me we were talking specifically about about model airplanes at that point, but or remote control airplanes. He said, when you're learning to fly and you're not such a good pilot, you want to fly two to three mistakes high. Right. And right. crop dusters are, are not that high up. So No. He also used to tell me that takeoffs are optional, landings are not. So Yeah, I don't I'm not sure I've ever thought of your father as a really wise man, but those, that is good advice. Not that he's not a wise man, that's just not how I categorized him in my life. Yeah, he's more of a wise guy, but yeah. 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 And when, it, when it came to his model airplanes, he just wanted to let you know, if you weren't sure, don't take off. <laughs> right. And and please don't crash it. That, those are things. Exactly. Yeah, right. so. yeah, he'd hand me the controls and he's like, okay, here you go. But he'd already put it so high I could barely see the damn thing <laughs> yeah. and I'm farsighted. It's like, yeah. I think I'm flying. I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we cut back to, to Thornhill, who uh, seems to settle in a bit. He seems like maybe he's realizing how alone he is. And he stuffs his hands down into his pocket. You know, he's kind of got his, his coat lifted up to expose his pockets and puts his hands down in. Uh, he puts on his weight and face. But almost immediately after he seems to settle in, he looks back down the dirt road. and uh, Or not the dirt road, I'm sorry. He looks uh, up the, the highway again and uh, to the north and does a little bit of a double take as finally some other sign of human life has arrived. We can see something coming from the distance. It takes a long time getting here. These are, this whole sequence is sort of long shots. You know, if you were making a, a movie today where you showed a scene that was empty and nothing's happening, you probably wouldn't linger on it for three, four, five, six seconds like most of these do. Right. Uh, And this one, well, you know, it it was the intent. I mean, really wanted him to be isolated. He really wanted to understand just how big and empty this place was, how flat it was, how, you know, barren everything was. We wanted to make sure that that he was starting to feel tense, even Mm -hmm. worse than having taken a bus in the first place and then asked the bus driver to make a weird stop for him. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean... I want to make sure that Thornhill is so far out of his element, What whatever happens next, it's uh, believable, right? Yeah, sort of ups his anxiety a little bit. It shows his out-of-placeness, maybe. I think that's what, you know, once we've come down from that overhead crane shot to, to the more eye-level type shots, you it emphasizes maybe more the aloneness and less of the vastness, but it, it still is like vastly alone. You know, we've now combined right. the, the, the large expanse with the total lack of humanity. Right. Um, and it, it works well. I mean, even these days, you know, when I'm watching this over and over again, I, it, I don't become inert to it. I mean, I'm looking at it on repeat in a small window and I'm still like, God, that's just, it makes me feel just, you know, ever so anxious. Just a little background hum of, God, this is not right. I don't think I can handle this. Yeah. This shot, on the arriving car lingers it as it gets closer we can see that it's a a baby blue sedan it's convertible the internet movie cars database tells me that it's a mercury monterey and you know mercury is now defunct it was sort of a mid-market car brand that started in the late 30s to sort of bridge the the luxury gap i guess we'll call it between ford and lincoln you know it was Right. You know, Ford is the, the everyman <laughs> assembly line car, and Lincoln is the same 
well, we know it is essentially the same thing just with nicer furnishings. But back then, all these really were different cars and things like that. But it was founded by Edsel Ford. But uh, I think it was discontinued around 2011, 2012, depending on whether you right. go real years or model years. <laughs> so, And what little I know about cars, I seem to remember Mercury always used to have these cars that were just rebadges of other people's designs. Yeah. It, well, they were yeah. rebadges of Ford designs generally. And I mean, that 80s and 90s were not kind to multiple car brands in terms of design. You know, they pretty much would make one design and sell it across every line of Chrysler or every line of Ford or every line of GM, just with different right. options in terms of, you know, your, your Cadillacs and your, your Lincolns and, well, geez, whatever the Chrysler, whatever the nice Chrysler <laughs> is, um, would, would just get like the, the wood trim and the leather seats. Whereas, you know, it, you, you couldn't get those in, in the Fords or whatever. So. Yeah. Like, uh, my family owned a, a Colt Vista wagon. Colt's another one of these things. And then, uh, you know, my friend, school friend's family owned a, a Mercury. I can't remember what it was called, but it was the exact same car. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, the exact same car. Yeah, that's that's true. There were the the there was that weird period where we had cross marketing, cross design platform stuff with between American and Japanese cars. Right? You had the the yeah. Mitsubishi. Uh, oh, not the Mirage, but. Maybe it was the Mirage, but it was the uh, Dodge 3000 or something like that and the Mitsubishi Eclipse. No, I don't know what it was, but they were essentially the same car. And you had, uh, yeah, just like you said, the the uh, Dodge Colt and the there was a Suzuki something that was pretty much the same. Uh, if I had done more research into this, I, I would have some better examples for you with real words. But, uh, but, but you know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah, just the fact that you have some notion of these yeah. other ones. I, the, I was only aware of the one, and that was because I rode in both of them a yeah. lot. Well, and your family always seemed to have like the the weird version of a of a uh, a car that you kind of recognized. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because my mom did most of the purchasing decisions, and she liked the weird ones. Yeah. So like, oh, you've you've got a uh, Suzuki side port. You're like a what? Uh, I've never heard of this. Yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, dude! Yeah, don't start. <laughs> Sounds so much like what my mom would have done. Yeah, we we almost ended up with a sidekick until we started hearing the stories about them things flipping over. Well, so, sure. yeah, I mean, sure. If you've got you know two or maybe three cars in your family, having one that flips over is kind of fun. But if it's your only <laughs> car, right? You need it. You need to stay yeah. up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they were having me um, cart my sister around, you know, chauffeuring her around, and for years, and they would have given me that, and we would have been rolling around in it. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. The, uh, the careful driving of the rural teenager is, is well-renowned. Yeah. I mean, I, and I was the epitome of that <laughs> safest driver you've ever met. So I've heard. Uh, so I remember. Mm. Well, you did all the driving. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're back to our Monterey, back to the Mercury Monterey. It's a, um, right. a black cloth convertible with the, the top is up. Um, and it's speeding along pretty quickly. We we cut back to Thornhill and we see him straighten up and look a little closer. He's like, maybe he's trying to see the person that's driving it uh, or maybe see if the person has seen him or is maybe looking for him. Is it Kaplan? Who knows? 
He's definitely got some wishful thinking going on For here. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, and he, you know, he's got an appointment. You know, the guy should be the next thing he sees. And, <laughs> That's yeah. right. It's like, well, he said he'd be here at three, and it's now it's it's half past, and I, yeah, I don't know. That's my terrible Cary Grant impression. Yeah, it's not oh. bad. You're all right. So we we don't see any signs of the of the Mercury slowing down at all, but it doesn't make it past Thornhill in this minute before this minute ends. So, you know, we may never know if that's Kaplan or not. Yeah, we'll have to find out tomorrow if the next minute even comes. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe the whole film crew got run over by a by a runaway Mercury, uh, and and the film just ends here. Well, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, you'd think we'd know about it by now, but hmm. yeah. All right. Do, do you have any more notes for luxurious minute 68? I, I do just want to say that I think this is maybe the second minute in a row that is completely dialogueless, completely musicless. And we've got at least a couple more in our chunk this week. And then I think it continues. There might be some music that kicks up next week, but no dialogue yet. So, Right. And and even after, you know, certain things start happening, I don't believe there's any dialogue for quite a while. Yeah, not until, uh, well, we'll let the future people talk about that. But yeah, it's, I think it's right. like a, I think we're currently in the middle of like a seven to eight minute dialogueless streak. I don't, I don't know about music or not, but yeah. Yeah. And this was something that used to happen sometimes only when certain directors were working. I'm sure we get quite a bit of that here in other Hitchcock's other works, too. He was kind of a, a device that a lot of people weren't comfortable using, something that would require skill to pull off correctly. Now, and that's why years and years later, decades later, Pixar puts out a film called WALL-E about a silly little robot, and there's 45 minutes with no dialogue at the beginning, <laughs> and people lose their minds over this. Oh, my God, it's brilliant. It's like, well, it's just people are afraid of doing it. That's yeah, all. Yeah. It's clearly doable. Uh, I mean, I, so there's a great book. I remind if I've talked about this already, stop me. But there's a uh, a great book that covers these conversations that Alfred Hitchcock had. Um, it's it's called Hitchcock Truffaut, and it's essentially Hitchcock and Truffaut talking for over a span of a few days. And they spoke one spoke English, and one spoke French. So there's a lot of strange translation misunderstandings in there. But uh, w- <laughs> one of the things that that does get brought up a lot is Hitchcock's cinematic, his devotion to like cinematic storytelling, right? He, he's a very much show him, don't tell him kind of director in sort of slavish ways sometimes. And he, you know, he had weird ways of, of going about that. We might not have all agreed with and probably made as many movies confusing as they made them great. But you know, he was, he was very much the language of cinema wasn't as established than as it is now, he was very much establishing it, so or helping to establish. Right. It. You know, I, I think it was uh, very interesting to to hear him talk about ways to accomplish storytelling that involved the actor less than you would think they would. Right. Uh, and, right. and I think I think a lot of that goes on here in in this well in this whole sequence really. Yeah, because this is all about. Pre-planning and then editing. It's there's hardly anything having to do with Cary Grant except stand there, look where I tell you. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean he he does convey some things with his face, and and maybe in the next minute or two we'll, we'll get into to some of them. You know, he'll he'll give you a look that isn't very distinct in terms of what that look means. He's not emoting like confusion or 
distress, but the situation that Hitchcock has built around it makes you read that facial expression as whatever he wants you to, you know? Right. And I think it's, I think it's very effective without being hyper specific or overly emoted by the, by our, by our actor, because this character is not an overly emoting character. Right. So him keeping everything kind of reined in is, isn't surprising to the viewer. We've already noticed this frequently, you know, I mean, the movie is, is over an hour old at this point. We know this guy pretty well. Yeah. And, and the fact that we're able to clearly read the situation, I think speaks a lot to, to that cinematic language that, that Hitchcock brings to it. So, yeah, that sounds like a great book, too. I'd love to hear some of that, some more of the, uh, especially the the miscommunications due to language. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was mostly between interviewer and interviewee, but sometimes they would sort of be talking about the same thing. And, and you know, you'd read a paragraph of Truffaut trying to explain to Hitchcock that he meant the same thing that he meant. It's a very... Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I don't want to say it's poorly edited, because it's not. It's... It's lightly edited. I think is the is the the phrase I should should be using. It, it's yeah. How else would you want it to be? Yeah. I mean, you you want to have all the the you know the rough edges on something like that. That's where some of the interesting stuff falls. Yeah. I, I initially started reading it as as research to to doing this, but it it jumps around a lot like through his career, so it, it makes it hard to sort of pin down anything specifically about this movie. So you end up end up reading a lot about. Hitchcock and his his entire career and and it's it's pretty fascinating. So it's it's just called Hitchcock Truffaut. Uh, my library had a copy. It's an old book. It's from probably the mid sixties. So the initial draft. I think he made updates and and things. But yeah, check it out. Oh boy, I made a library comment and then I said check it out. I'm sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. Anyway, before we accidentally pun our way through more of this episode. I will just let you know that you, the listener, can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, HitchcockMinute.com. You can connect with us and any of the other hosts or many of the other hosts, some of the other hosts of of, uh, Hitchcock Minute on social media at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook. That's the name of the group. Go there, find a group, search like a search box that tells you where the groups are and search for The Man on Washington's Nose. Hopefully you'll find it. Hopefully it's easier for you than that explanation was for me to spit out. Or on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. So join us for Minute 69 of North by Northwest tomorrow on Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.